great shows. But right now I'm joined by Professor Haywood from the, the Head of Politics Department at the University of Otago. Good morning to you. Good morning. How are we today? We are good. Thank you very much. Oh, well, thank you for coming in. Pleasure. Um, right. You, you're, coming, you're coming in because you on Monday you gave your inaugural Professor... Professoral. I don't know how. It's a crazy word. Isn't it? it doesn't seem like it's natural. <laughs> Professory. Word. Exactly. It's yeah. not. Uh, lecture, uh, which was called Te Tiriti o Waitangi, the Constitution and our political imagination. Um, and I want to ask you first because I mean this is. Um, I guess these things are always uh, interest. The things you're interested about and you're kind of talking about uh, why you love it. Uh, your research how you got into it. Is that what, what these inaugural lectures are all about? Yeah, they are really. Um, it, it's a chance for people to talk about you know, their research journey, as mm. you say. So what got them into uh, what they love doing and yep. where they've, how they've journeyed through that process to get mm-hmm. to where they are by the time they're promoted to professor. Yeah, and so... Um you know, you're obviously you've got a passion for New Zealand politics, constitutional politics, uh, indigenous politics. Yeah. Um, so where does this passion stem, uh, stem from? You know, what fascinates you about it all? Yeah, that's a good question. In fact, um, uh, somebody said to me, the person who was introducing me, um, the Pro Vice-Chancellor, said, you haven't said anything in your address about what got you into politics in the first place. Mm. I don't actually remember deciding that I wanted... Um, I mean, how many of us do really decide what we want to do when we grow up? I don't remember deciding that I wanted to be a political scientist, kind of an mm-hmm. odd thing for a child to choose to do. Um, but, I, but you know, my household, a lot of people say that, was fairly political, not not um, explicitly. We didn't really talk about politics as politics. Yeah. But we talked a lot about the world and what seemed unfair and unjust. And mm-hmm. um, I guess we had some pretty strong values in terms of... And we certainly were politically aware there were... I remember all those parties that my parents would go to when there was election, you know, when it was election night parties and stuff. And I remember feeling, uh, even at a really young age, that there was something fairly important going on. And I'd just kind of watch the grown-ups getting excited or upset or, you know, Mm -hmm, whatever, mm -hmm. and think, oh, that seems crazy. So I don't know where where necessarily the interest came from, but certainly I did. I chose some subjects at Canterbury University where I did my undergraduate in politics, and that really caught my attention I really yeah. enjoyed I like those questions about why things don't seem fair for mm-hmm. some people and you know what justice should look like and how, how the world ought to look if I was in charge yeah. <laughs> well, why, why the political scientist route and not well not yet some other way and uh, uh, the, the other way actually oh, the, a, actually being a politician yeah yeah that's really funny I, I would never do that <laughs> I, I take my hat off to them I simply do not have the character for that kind of role yeah. I'm definitely too much of a chicken and um, and it's quite different you know so I prefer to be behind the scenes talking to people I wouldn't want to be in front of the scenes mm-hmm. dealing with all that mm-hmm. flack frankly so I, you know I admire people who step into public role that's definitely not the way that I would choose to go. Do you think because um, it's interesting a lot of people's uh, political leanings have begun growing up and some of them change over time you know did you have political leanings um, when you I know I certainly did because I lived in a household where my father was a, a freezing worker in the 70s and the 80s mm. so he was on the picket line a lot. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so I've, you know, and that definitely 
put my leanings towards the left and, and unionism yeah. and the like. You know, is it the same for you? And well, um, it is, but I think that's what I find fascinating about politics, and that's why I like teaching politics because when students come into politics, um, you know, at the at stage one, they bring those leanings with them. And what I like to do is make them aware of the fact that though they have been influenced to think that way mm. by their own experiences mm-hmm. and that there are people who don't agree with those influences and have had different experiences and try and get them to kind of step back, think about where their values have come from, how, how coherent their thoughts are about the way that they look at the world, how they would defend those thoughts, what they would say to people who don't share those um, values and views, mm-hmm. and how you kind of you know work out that tension between those things. So that's the bit that I really enjoy. A lot of students yeah. will often ask me about you know who do you vote for and what, and I'm like, well that doesn't matter. Yeah. So you know it's it's more about how um, how you see these issues and yeah. and how you come to appreciate why dif- people hold different views and how you can defend your own. Do you think um, just before we get into uh, other parts of your research, do you think that we're becoming more politically selfish? More politically selfish. Yeah. Well, there's all kinds of evidence that um, you know generations coming through neoliberalism are, are more um, oriented towards themselves in yeah. all kinds of other ways. Yeah, you know, yeah. economically. So, and I think if you define politics really broadly, then yes, I do think there are generations. But having said that, I also think some of that's shifting quite significantly. Mm-hmm. I think what we're also seeing is generations of young people who have a much broader view of the common good in terms of climate and other issues than people did in my generation. So we were probably much more selfish in the sense of not understanding how our own actions were adding together to have big effects. So, I, I mean, I, you know, it swings and roundabouts, really. Yeah, because, yeah. of course, in neoliberalism, the message has always been about it, it, the economy and um, personal yeah. wealth and the nation's wealth as well. So yeah. that definitely influences you, doesn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's why I asked that question, because <laughs> I thought that was the answer you were going to give, and I was hoping it was. Uh, <laughs> so, um, all right, the, the lecture. Um, now, the treaty... Um, of Waitangi. How effective is it as a document? Well, or as two, well, you know. Yeah, two documents. Yeah. Doc- um, good question. So there's two answers to that, I think. On the one hand, it's not a law, so it's mm. not terribly effective. So um, in terms of being a mechanism that can be used directly to defend rights and, you know, get the courts involved and and be quite definitive about um, who we are and what should happen, probably not very effective. But having said that, the other answer is extremely effective because um, from about 1975, when the Waitangi Tribunal was first, you know, um, created, or Mm -hmm. at least was able to be created from then, a huge amount has changed in terms of New Zealand's government and arrangements and identity. And all of those things have been because of this um, rediscovery by you know most people, the public generally, and certainly our governments, of the treaty and its significance. So I think there's two answers to that. Very... Yeah. You know, very effective, and probably also you have to be aware of the limitations of it. Yeah, I mean, and, and the limitations of the tribunal itself. As Absolutely, well, right? yeah. I mean, if you look at 2014, they came out and said that you know Maori didn't cede sovereignty. Yeah. Um, that you know you didn't give up your mana, but at the same turn they didn't say that the government 
doesn't have sovereignty over exactly. the country. Yeah. So, um, and actually both of those things are kind of true. But but what also limits the tribunal is the fact that it can only it just says that. So yeah. it has if you like the moral high ground when it makes those kinds of statements and puts them on the public record and can document um, the oral and written and historical evidence to, mm-hmm. to support what it's saying, the governments don't need to listen to it or act on what it says. So is the is what the um, tribunal come out with, what they say, is that just tokenism? No, I don't think so. I think... Um, I th- so the statement that they made about Māori not ceding their sovereignty, and they said, you know, that is, they didn't cede the right, to their authority over their own peoples and mm. their own territories. Um, that's that's just a statement of fact, really. Yeah, Those, yeah. you know, p- for people who've been working in that area for ages, that hasn't been said before because the question hasn't been asked in the right way in a tribunal inquiry before. Yeah. So it was no surprise to lots of people that the tribunal said that. It was a terrible surprise. Well, it was. Um, it was kind of inconvenient for the government that it was said so um, uh, directly, yeah. and it was fairly quickly set aside as mm-hmm. a kind of fanciful, ridiculous, divisive thing for the tribunal to have said, and we moved on. But um, but it was an important thing to have on the record, and it stays there, and it is still um, it's still you know bubbling along as something yeah. that the tribunal has now documented, mm-hmm. and other tribunals will continue to build on that. I'm sure. The UN said the same thing as well. Exactly, yeah. So um, in terms of outcomes of the tribunal, um, are there a fair representation of what the treaty says? I mean, I already know the answer to this. (laughs) (laughs) You mean the the reports that the tribunal produces? Yeah, yeah, the reports and uh, the findings and then the settlements after. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, um, no, they're not. Well, it depends what you mean by a fair representation. So, again, I'd say there's two answers to this. Yeah. Uh, there's no way that, in terms of economic redress, they come anywhere close yeah. to redressing the um, the economic, um, you know, a- uh, assets that Māori lost through losing land and other assets. Um, and for the most part, they're kind of a political agreement. But mm-hmm. I think, on the other hand, I think it's hugely significant that in the Treaty Settlement Acts themselves, the Crown makes an apology, which... Um, you know, I would encourage everybody to go and read some of those apologies that the Crown has made in the Settlement Acts. Tuhoi, for example, I, you know, I challenge anyone to keep a dry eye when you read the things that the Crown acknowledges that happened, yeah. that were terrible injustice, and and things that all New Zealanders ought to be aware of that are a part of our colonial history. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, the, it's it's a mixed bag. I think what we're achieving through our settlements, in many ways, politically, are hugely significant. Um, economically, obviously, is still kind of a drop in the bucket to yep. what Māori lost. It's, you know, I mean, maybe it's just, um, in a lot of ways, just a part of healing. Yeah, it right? is. Yeah, yeah. and and um, and a really important part. And I think that um, I think that one of the reasons that we are often uh, viewed as really uh, doing well in our settlements to be perfectly honest, is because Māori have been extraordinarily generous in their capacity to accept these settlements mm-hmm. um, in the spirit in which they are given and for what they can provide yep. and find ways to move forward. 
because yeah, uh, you look at um, what's happening in Canada, right? You, you yeah. have, have a big interest <clears throat> yeah. in that, and that is... That's not going so well. No. And people and, don't know that. No. And, in, you know, and it, the interesting thing is, in some ways, I, I, there are parts of it that I think we ought to envy. So I think that some of the language that's used, um, and not just language, some of the concepts that are available to First Nations in Canada about self-government. You know, Māori would love for our governments to start to talk in terms of self-government mm-hmm. for Māori and what that might mean and be kind of creative in terms of how that might be exercised and we started to see a little bit of that with the Tuhoi settlement um, but there is a lot about what's happening in Canada that shows how different circumstances meant that they've got a very complicated and much more adversarial process mm-hmm. unfolding there. Self-governance but without resources to, to, yeah, to, yeah. to back it. Yeah, true. Yeah, um, And it really depends on, and, and I think that's a good point, I think with territory to stand on to, to claim self-government, um, First Nations have had some advantage there that Māori yeah. who didn't maintain, who weren't able to maintain reserves mm-hmm. don't have. Um, but you know, but still, there's a lot that people can do once they have control over their own. Even if it just means the capacity to determine who's a citizen in their nation, you know, yeah. those kinds of things are significant. Um, all right. Well, with that treaty, and it's interesting that you said, you know, it, it's not. Um, there's nothing to do with it in law, really. But I mean, yeah. treaty's part of the constitution. Yeah. What is the constitution? <laughs> Good question. You should do polls 102. <laughs> <laughs> I should do polls. I'd love to. Um, yeah. So if we were in the US, I could say to you, "Come on, you know what our constitution yeah. is. Yeah. Here it is. That's it's all right. written down in one place, and we know mm-hmm. the amendments. So we are a little bit different. We're, we're one of only a few countries that has quite a different style of constitution. So a constitution is really just the rules that a country needs to run. Yeah. And we have all of those. The way that we do it, in typical Kiwi style, is to have them kind of spread around the place. So we've got them in different acts of parliament, we've got them in some regulations, we've even got some things that are just convention and not um, not written down, you know, not part of our legal framework at mm-hmm. all. Yeah, yeah. But we do we do have it, so it's described as an unwritten um, constitution and it's not entrenched, so it means that our parliament's much more powerful than our courts. So we are kind of unique, but we do have everything we need to function. Um, there are, you know, there's been calls recently. Um, uh, Sir Geoffrey Palmer, who's a long-time mm-hmm, mm-hmm. advocate for constitutional reform, um, he and Andrew Butler have been have proposed entrenching, also changing our constitution, getting it more like the US, putting it all in one place, writing it down, yep. um, and entrenching it, which basically just means uh, MPs can't change it. Yep. so easily and the courts have a little bit more authority to step in and say no 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 you can't do that that's unconstitutional yeah um so they've got a website that they are encouraging people to think about this issue and um they've drafted a constitution that they suggest doesn't actually change very much at all about the way that new zealand functions it just as they say tidies it up yep. puts it all in one place um, and and as I said, entrenches it, so gives it a little bit more protection than it currently has. And would that bring um, the treaty into law? It does. In their ver- yes, it would. So it yeah. wouldn't necessarily, but in their proposed constitution, yeah. it does, and it protects it from amendment mm-hmm. as well. So how much hope is there in that happening? What's happening now with the current government? You know, is there any indications that they are in favour of this, or government's always been pushing back on it? There's no indication. I, I certainly haven't heard the government make this government or 
any governments make yeah. any statements about a constitutional change. But then um, it kind of it probably shouldn't happen that way. It really is something that ought to come from the bottom up. Yeah. So I think I think the government will have an ear. Any government will have an ear to how serious the movement for constitutional change seems to be in the public. Mm-hmm. Same thing kind of happened with us with our electoral reform um, back in the 90s. That wasn't something that the government wanted to get engaged with yeah, necessarily, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it kind of uh, uh, events took a bit of a turn and they couldn't really ignore it. So I think, you know, like the question of whether or not we'll ever become a republic, governments have been much more vocal on that yes. than they have on the question of our constitution. So it's a kind of a watch this space, really, I think. I mean, if we become a republic, it would probably force us to have a constitution anyway, wouldn't it? Well, um, not necessarily. So, you know, we could just do that by changing our Constitution Act and saying our head of states. And, and oh. at the moment, because it's not a protected law, you know, it's not entrenched, our MPs could do that tomorrow. We could become a republic really easily. So I know. No, I, can, awesome, I can see the face you're pulling. Yeah. That's the face that many of my students pull. There's so much they? uncertainty in our system. Well, like, not really. So, I mean, that's the interesting I thing. Mean, I agree. but um, And there is certainly a lot of flexibility. But actually, um, another way of looking at it is to say whatever our MPs, who we elected and yeah. put in Parliament, whatever they say goes, that's yeah. pretty certain. So, yeah. <laughs> so flexibility, yes. Um, compare that perhaps to the US where people say a constitution gives you great certainty actually we saw this with some of the executive orders that Donald Trump passed Mm -hmm. you know you can say that written constitution gives you certainty but actually it's tremendously uncertain because as soon as something is done everyone waits to see how the courts will interpret it because ultimately the authority is theirs so there is a period of uncertainty. So, you know, I think it's kind of swings and roundabouts. Oh, let's not go down the American <laughs> The Supreme Court. Oh, what a rigmarole that is. Um, okay, so, I mean, you, you it's got to start from the bottom up, as you said, but, you know, do you think the country will ever f- find something like the Constitution sexy? I mean, to use that yeah. word, you know? I mean, mm, is, is it really going... Not. See, I love it, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. funnily enough, um, not everybody does. Well, the other thing I would say is, so the other um, conversation that's been going on that's quite a different conversation is the um, report that was produced um, before the P- Butler and Palmer was a report, Matiki Mai, which came from um, professors Margaret Mutu and Moana Jackson, who had convened on behalf of a whole group of Māori organisations uh, a national conversation amongst Māori about the constitution. Mm-hmm. And they had, um, you know, if you want to think about from the bottom up, they had about 250 hui around the country talking with Māori about the constitution and what they saw their constitutional future to be mm-hmm. in Aotearoa. And they had um, a youth arm of that movement as well that ran about 70 wānanga. I saw mm. a really cool demonstration of one of those wānanga at a conference I was at a few years ago. And the exercise was for um, rangatahi to... Um, they were asked to act out in some way the colonial journey that the Crown and Māori had been on from 1840 and the group that I saw did this hilarious thing with um, with uh, Māori coming along in a car, you know, in the driving seat and they saw the Crown on the side of the road and thought, oh, they look like they need a bit of a hand, we'll pick them up, you know, mm-hmm. and put them in the passenger seat next to us and then they acted out this whole process <laughs> by which Māori found themselves ditched out of the car pretty quickly with the Crown burning off in the driver's seat oh, and it was just a really lovely... Um, I love the fact that it made the Constitution and those questions of power really real and understandable. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, that's all the Constitution is. It's just about 
who's in charge, what their power is, and how we limit that power in yeah. appropriate ways. So, um, so that's another um, uh, kind of constitutional journey that's going on at the moment. The um, report that that work that huge number of hui uh, and that organisation produced talks about the constitution in a completely different way from Butler and Palmer. So they have um, a, a kind of a Māori rangatiratanga and a crown kawanatanga mm. spheres where decisions are made and then a um, te tiriti a kind of, uh, what do they call it, relational sphere where those groups come together for decision making. So rather than um, the treaty being a part of our constitution, the treaty basically is the framework for the constitution. So that's a totally, that's a very different, based on different traditions, different language, different values, mm -hmm. way of looking at how our, you know, constitution can function. All right, well, we'll live and hope that they're... <laughs> It happens. Well, you know, who knows? It's quite the, the thing that fascinates me. This is what I was talking about at, at my um, address: is that we've we've just been presented with these two completely different views of what might happen in our future, and at some point we've got to try and find a way to get those people to talk to each other. Yeah, is there the will? You think? I think so. Yeah. yeah. It's just a question of how that would happen. All right. Well, how? Just quickly again on the the, the Treaty of Waitangi. And the tribunal. Uh, obviously, the tribunal um, has been good for Māori and the Crown. Um, but do you think there's too much time constraints and pressures on on the the tribunal, or do you think that's a good thing when the government said we want to have things cleared up by a yeah. certain time? I've always wondered about that. I personally. I I've heard so many different answers to that question from people that I really respect. I've decided I have no view on that myself <laughs> and I keep changing my mind. Yeah. When the government announced that it was going to put an end to being able to lodge historical claims with the tribunal, like many other people, I, I thought that was outrageous. I thought that it was um, placing unnecessary pressure on iwi who really had a lot going on and might not have the resources to get themselves ready for um, for you know, presenting a claim in time. Mm -hmm. um, but then, you know, the process is unfolding and progress is being made. And I have heard a number of people who are engaged in the process say that actually it, it was very stressful, it still is, uh, for Māori to see those claims through. But um, at some point we had to say, OK, let's, um, let's think about how we can get this moving through mm -hmm. in order to advance the relationship beyond. But the thing that I think is probably more important is how um, governments are um, forecasting what's going to happen next. Yeah. So it concerned me, the, the irony about treaty settlements is our conservative national governments have always done a much better job of settling claims mm -hmm. than the Labour government has. You get a lot more through, Yeah. largely because... Um, you know, it's about it's about the economic redress. Yeah. Um, but the but the other concern that I had was that actually the the um, expectation that that was building was that the treaty would be done with by the time treaty settlements were completed, and that's obviously not true. No. So we've got it's always going to be with us, and it'll always be a part of the decision making and how we think about our country and our future. Um, and I think it's really important that people understand that treaty settlements aren't the only thing going on in mm -hmm. terms of treaty relationships.
Indeed. Um, well, we're running out of time. Just one quick last thing. The the last part of your uh, the title of, of your lecture is mm. our political imagination. Yeah. How imaginative are we as a nation? Um, I, I feel like we used to be. Well, um, so one of the things that I said was that um, I used to find, when I first arrived at Otago, I was pretty shocked at how, um, how uh, much... Uh, Polls students, some students generally didn't want to talk about the treaty and found it too confronting mm-hmm. to have to. And that now that's not the case. Yep. And that, um, you know, you, I will t- talk to students who are really ideologically diverse, like as, as ideologically diverse as you can imagine, and they will agree on the significance of the treaty and its place in New Zealand. They just don't agree on the mechanisms that you use, you know, yep. to, to kind of... Redru- Build these relationships, so I think I think we're pretty good in political imagination. I think mm-hmm. that um, I feel like the generations we've got coming through, I find it quite inspiring to be honest and not too sappy yeah. to talk with students who are really open-minded about a number of things about what our political future might look like. Um, and I think I, I mean I find that um, heartening because you don't see that in all generations. That yeah. you, you know you do strike quite a lot of resistance to ideas that people find challenging there's quite a lot of fear among some generations about things that might change that they don't understand I just love that that age where anything seems possible and you're still open to what might be well, long may they think like that. I agree. I know what happens, <laughs> I know what happens to some people when they come out of university. Yeah. Things can change. They certainly can. They Mortgages do terrible things they, to people. They, oh, my God, they do. <laughs> they do. That was kind of where I was getting with the beginning of our talk. All right, well, thank you so much for coming it's in. It's a pleasure. It's, uh, yeah, it's a pleasure having you in here again. And it's, it's interesting, when we talked like, a couple of weeks ago uh, about the uh, in, the Declaration of Independence of the United Tribes of New Zealand, uh, I, I, a few of my friends friends found that really confronting but confronting in a good oh, way. Oh interesting. Yeah. Good. Well yeah. you know take a leap of faith keep an mm, open mind. Indeed. Keep listening. Well thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure having you in here again and I no doubt I'll drag you in here a few more times. I look forward to it. Thank future. you. Well not in the near future but I'll, I'll give you some time. Uh, <laughs> all right, hey, good luck with um, all the things that are happening right now in terms of, um, of yeah. exams and all thank that you. stuff so, because I know yeah. you're very busy with this. Thanks for the time. All right.